It's hard for me to see the bill passing this week, but that's up to the majority leader. Hard for me to see it passing at all. But that's also up to the majority well, leader. I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. From Pacifica Radio in sunny Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., in Oregon on 91.7 FM, KYAQ on the Central Coast, 106.7 FM, Queso in Cottage Grove, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on 92.9 FM, WLRI, in Maui, Hawaii on 88.5 FM, KAKU, In Columbus, Ohio, on WGRN 94.1 FM, Palinville, New York's 102.9 FM WLPP. And in in Grand Rapids, Michigan, on WPRR in Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We're also heard streaming coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices channel. Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Deprogrammed Radio, Detour Talk, and Radio Sputnik, blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us today for another thrilling action-packed adventure. And it is, again, once again, as pretty much every day these days, uh, one of those days when it's just a flood of news coming in and we're trying to make sense of all of it. Uh, coming up in uh, very shortly here uh, today, the Republicans' stolen U.S. Supreme Court Majority, uh, they ruled uh, mostly in favor of Donald Trump's Muslim travel ban, at least for now. And last week, the Supremes also agreed to consider whether partisan gerrymandering is a violation of the law or the Constitution, a case that could reshape American politics for decades, perhaps forever, for either good or bad. It is a huge decision. We will discuss both of those end-of-session decisions by the court and several others with our friend Mark Joseph Stern of Slate.com very momentarily. And, uh, oh yeah, the CBO is now out with its score of the Senate's Senate GOP's uh, new scheme to repeal and replace of the Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare. More on that in a moment as well. But uh, since this may be the only good-ish news we've got for you today, let's start here very quickly. And I admit I am redefining the uh, the definition for good news today, Desi Toyin. <laughs> oh, uh, goody. With that and with the CBO. That's also good news. But again, redefining Qualified. yes, Qualified redefining the meaning of the words, uh, the phrase "good news." All right, let me just hit this real quick because this happened uh, on Friday late, and I want to make sure to get to it. The Republican state official who's been tapped by President Donald Trump to lead his so-called election integrity commission. It's really a voter fraud commission. Actually, it's really a voter suppression uh, commission. In any event, uh, he was sanctioned by a federal judge on Friday. 
for his, quote, deceptive conduct and lack of candor. Wow. In a voting rights case that was brought against him. This is, of course, Kansas Secretary of State Chris Kobach. And he will have to pay, he's been ordered to pay the court a $1,000 fine as punishment for, quote, patently misleading representations. During the litigation over um, the proof of citizenship voter registration requirement that Kobach has been seeking to implement in the state of Kansas, as part of its lawsuit challenging that requirement, the ACLU had asked the court to sanction Kobach for how he handled the group's request to view documents believed to be proposed, believed to be proposals to amend the National Voter Registration Act, including a proposal that he was photographed holding while meeting with Donald Trump back in December. The ACLU's legal challenge against his proof of citizenship requirement claims uh, claims that the uh, that the uh, his statute, his his legislation in Kansas is in violation of the National Voter Registration Act. And that's why these documents were so important and relative um, relevant to the case. Along with the fine, according to U.S. Magistrate James P. O'Hara, the ACLU will also be allowed to depose Kobach about that proposal that he purportedly shared with uh, with the president elect last last December. The uh, the court found that basically Kobach had misled the court about those documents, that it was patently misleading the court. And this guy now, Chris Kobach, is the one who was supposed to be the well, he's the vice chair, but he's really going to be running this so-called election integrity commission uh, that was put in place by Donald Trump. Uh, he also recently announced a run for uh, governor of the state of Kansas. And uh, he has repeatedly claimed without proof that there are millions of people who voted illegally in the uh, 2016 election. Trump made those claims. Kobach himself did not dispute those claims. He ran as secretary of state in Kansas on the idea of stopping voter fraud. And in the nearly eight years that he's been secretary of state now, he has uh, had he's won convictions against Nine, I think nine people uh, in the entire state of Kansas, most of them uh, for having voted elsewhere, double voted in other states at the same time. Sometimes they knew it was wrong. Sometimes they didn't know it was wrong. I don't believe he's come up with a single person who would have been deterred from voting at the polling place through the uh, so-called voter ID, these photo ID voting restrictions that Republicans like Kobach have been trying to uh, put in place all around the country. So, uh, yeah, that's who you got leading up the, uh, the the president's voter fraud commission, a guy who has just been found by the court uh, to have conducted deceptive conduct and uh, offered a lack of candor in dealing with the uh, in dealing with the court. Just wanted to try to get that in before we uh, move to the uh, the big news <laughs> breaking just before air. Yes. The Parade of Horribles upcoming. Yeah, exactly. That was the one good news. See, I told you it's redefining good news. Uh, But he deserves to be dinged uh, and uh, much worse, frankly, for his behavior and stopping and trying to stop tens of thousands, if not millions of Americans from being able to cast their vote. All right. uh, This is breaking just before airtime on uh, on Mondays. The uh, Congressional Budget Office has now found they have scored the Republican bill. 
the Republican health care bill that came out just last Thursday. And uh, it will result in 22 million more Americans being uninsured in 2026 than they would if uh, President Barack Obama's health care law, the Affordable Care Act, stayed in place. So 22 million Americans will lose their insurance under the Senate Republican scheme, according to the congressional, the the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office on Monday, uh, in what is seen as a blow to Republican leaders uh, and their hopes of pushing this plan through the chamber this week. They are hurrying to get it out before the 4th of July. But I guess once again, in redefining good news, hey, this is good news. It only takes away health care from 22 million people Whereas the House version takes health care away from 23 million people. Good news for a million people, right? Well, there you go. That's Uh, about all there is in there. That's about it. Yeah, it would also save, uh, well, this is uh, for for budget hawks, it would also save $321 billion over the next decade. Save the government that much money. Uh, That's got to be good news to people who care about such things uh, much more than they care about the health of citizens of these United States. Of course, that happens by spending $1 trillion less on health care than what would currently be spent and using those savings to repeal the Affordable Care Act's taxes to uh, wealthy individuals, a handful of wealthy individuals uh, and a bunch of medical companies as well. So uh, there's good news for rich people. You're going to get a whole bunch of money back, billions of dollars back in, in taxes Who cares if those poor people suffer and die in the meantime? The CBO coverage estimates pose yet another problem for Senator Mitch McConnell, according to AP. Uh, He um, had hoped by, um, well, to to have that vote before uh, the July 4 recess at the end of this week. But even by Friday afternoon, the day after he revealed the legislation, he was already facing public statements of opposition of varying levels from at least five GOP senators. He can only afford to lose two of them before this bill won't pass with a bare majority in the U.S. Senate. The 22 million additional people without coverage under under the Senate proposal is just a hair better than the 23 million people who'd be left without insurance under the measure that the House approved last month, according to AP. Donald Trump has called that version mean and called on Senate Republicans to approve legislation with more heart. Well, this has got more heart. This has got one million people more heart. Uh, of course, it has. Uh, it is worse for Americans in the immediate future because the House bill, the CBO had found, would lose uh, coverage for 14 million people next year alone. The Senate bill would result in 15 million of them with no insurance next year. So he's facing uh, a lot of opposition, uh, not just from members of his own caucus, of course, but from outside groups. We went through a list uh, last week of of, uh, you know, the hospital groups and uh, medical groups who had come out against in in no uncertain terms against this bill. Uh, And that is no doubt why the uh, number two Senate Republican John Cornyn of Texas, uh, who had previously said that, uh, well, maybe we'll come uh, we'll vote on this bill later in July after the recess. He tweeted out today, quote, I am closing the door. We need to do this this week. 
before double-digit premium increases are announced for next year. Oh, like they care. That's why he's doing it. Yeah, not right. Because to avoid the increases, not to avoid uh, the growing opposition and people like you calling in to your senator at 202-224-3121 and giving them your opinion on how they should vote. Donald Trump uh, struck what the New York Times called a tone of resignation Monday on Twitter, noting that Republican senators were working hard to pass their repeal bill, but added, it's not easy. Perhaps just let Obamacare crash and burn, said the president of the United States. Well, that's not mean at all, is it, to the some 20 million Americans who have uh, gained coverage thanks to the Affordable Care Act. So uh, now we're looking at Republican Senators Dean Heller of Nevada, Susan Collins of Maine, several other moderate GOP senators who are uh, have expressed concerns about this measure. Uh, and the, the fact that it would increase the number of uninsured people substantially, according to the CBO today, the increase would be disproportionately larger among older people with lower income. Those between uh, the ages of 50 and 64 in particular with incomes below 200 percent of the poverty level, they would at least until this bill have been covered by Medicaid uh, until they're 65 when Medicare kicks in. But uh, this Senate bill really guts Medicaid on a whole bunch of different levels, as we have been uh, discussing and as we will be once again discussing uh, in the days ahead. And and remember, it delays it until 2021, until after the next presidential election. And then that's when the bomb will go off for all these people who may not be aware before they vote for the next president. At the same time, a bunch of Nobel winning economists have now come out against the Senate health care bill. Uh, this includes uh, this a uh, group of about uh, 30, I think, uh, 30 economists uh, came out against the bill today, including six Nobel Prize winners expressing opposition to the Senate Republicans legislation, arguing that a quote threatens reduced coverage and higher costs for those who continue to have it. So uh, hospitals are against it. Uh, economists are against it. And today as well, the American Medical Association came out against the bill. In a letter to Senate leaders, they outlined their opposition to the so-called Better Care Reconciliation Act. Throughout the health care, throughout, uh, throughout the health system reform debate, the AMA has urged that reforms not result in individuals with health insurance losing access to affordable quality coverage. That Medicaid and other safety nets Uh, not uh, continue to be adequately funded and that key market reforms such as pre-existing conditions be maintained. The Senate draft, however, they find violates many of those principles. In their letter to uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, the AMA said on behalf of the physician and medical student members of the American Medical Association, We are writing to express our opposition to the discussion draft of the Better Care Reconciliation Act released on June 22nd. The letter begins, medicine has long operated under the precept of first do no harm. This legislation violates that standard on many levels, they go on to say. So uh, does anybody like this bill? Does anybody other than the, uh, the, the Republicans in the Senate who are desperately uh, working to pass this thing, does anybody like this bill? And I guess maybe the rich people who have their health insurance and, hey, they're going to get anywhere from 
$50,000 on up to millions of dollars in uh, in tax breaks. And while the, the cuts to health care, those don't kick in for a couple of years, uh, the the tax cuts, those will be retroactive going back to 2016 under the Senate bill, if it ever gets passed. Because this is actually a tax cut bill dressed up as health care. Says you. Says me. All right. Uh, speaking of says you, we'll take a quick break and come back with what the uh, U.S. Supreme Court says to us today and all of the very, very good news that you, I'm sure, are otherwise expecting from the now-stolen majority on the U.S. Supreme Court. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. Why? Because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com with you. Well, uh, as noted, it's a big day today, a very big day in the uh, U.S. Supreme Court. It's actually been a big day over the past week or two at the U.S. Supreme Court as they complete their session for the 2016-2017 season. And uh, the Supreme Court announced on Monday that it would decide whether President Trump's revised travel ban was lawful. That sets the stage for a major decision on the scope of presidential power next year. Trump, uh, his revised executive order issued in March, limited travel from six mostly Muslim countries for 90 days and suspended the nation's refugee program for 120 days. The time was needed according to the order, to address gaps in the government's screening and vetting procedures. Two federal appeals courts have already blocked critical parts of the order. The administration had had asked the lower court rulings to be stayed as the case moved forward, as it was heard on its merits. The court granted part of that request in its unsigned opinion on Monday. The Supreme Court did. The justices, in effect, said that foreigners with ties or relationships in the U.S. would not be prohibited from entering the country, but those applying for visas who had never been here or had no family or business or other ties could be prohibited under the uh, under Trump's executive order. They write, uh, we grant the government's applications to stay the injunctions that were put in place by the lower courts to the extent that the injunctions prevent enforcement of Mr. Trump's executive order, the ruling said, with respect to foreign nationals who lack any bona fide relationship with a person or entity in the U.S. Justice Clarence Thomas joins Sam Alito and Neil Gorsuch dissenting from uh, from part of the uh, court's opinion there. They said that they would have revised the revived the travel ban in its entirety while the court considered the case. In a statement from the White House, Trump hailed the court's action as, quote, a clear victory for our national security. 
Trump said, I want people who can love the United States and all of its citizens and who will be hardworking and productive. I can't allow people into our country who want to do us harm. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit had ruled last month that the limits on travel from the six countries violated the First Amendment of the Constitution and its ban on government establishment of religion. They were relying on Trump's statements uh, during the presidential campaign in large part where he called for a Muslim ban. The court said that the order drips with religious intolerance, animus and discrimination. And the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit had also recently blocked both the limits on travel and the suspension of the refugee program. I uh, ruled on statutory grounds rather than constitutional grounds, saying that Trump had exceeded the authority granted him by Congress. The court agreed to review both cases and said it would hear arguments in October, noting that the government had not asked it to act faster. Such an emergency, but apparently the administration said, oh, take your time. The court suggested that the administration could complete its own internal reviews over the summer, the ones that were supposed to be carried out when this uh, ban was in effect. And that raises the prospect that the case could be moot entirely by the time it is uh, scheduled to be argued this October. But that's not all the Supreme Court did today on their last day of opinions for the session. And they uh, they also had uh, several opinions and announcements last week as well that we weren't able to cover with everything that was going on last week, including one of which may have a sweeping effect on how elections are carried out in this country for generations to come. And as suggested by the decisions that accompanied it, uh, this uh, hearing coming up by the Supreme Court next season may not be a good thing, at least for those of us who believe in free and fair democracy. Here to explain, hopefully, all of these decisions and what we know about next year's schedule at the U.S. Supreme Court, now featuring a stolen 5-4 to four Republican majority, is one of our most reliable Supreme Court champions, Mark Joseph Stern of Slate.com. He covers the law, the court system, the Supreme Court, and LGBTQ issues, and much more for Slate.com. Welcome back to the broadcast, Mark Joseph Stern. Thank you so much for having me back on. Always a pleasure, even on a somewhat dark day like Monday. I, you think it's a very dark day, to be frank. Uh, this order, uh, is it a victory on this travel ban? Let's start here. Is it a victory for Donald Trump, as he has been suggesting? It is a qualified victory, though not nearly as big as he has been suggesting. Uh, it, it really all depends on how you look at the decision. You know, what Donald Trump said was essentially, look, I can now use this travel ban to bar millions and millions of people from entering the country. And in that sense, yes, it is a triumph for him and his uh, vile policies. On the other hand, the carve-out that the Supreme Court created is probably going to apply to a huge number of people who would have actually been affected by the travel ban. You know, the majority of people who are going to be coming from these six Muslim-majority countries mm -hmm. already had some kind of uh, connection, either a family connection, an educational institution, a job offer, 
something like that that fits into the bona fide relationship category that the court created today. Now, the administration can try to narrow that exception as much as possible uh, to say, for example, oh, well, you can't use your cousin or your aunt uh, as your hook to enter the country. It has to be an immediate relative. Uh, and those issues will be litigated throughout the summer. Uh, but the bottom line here is that the court did a lot of people, uh, a great deal of agony, uh, and this is best seen as a kind of compromise political decision rather than a statement of law. And, and that's what I want to ask about, because the order requires, and this carve-out you talk about, is for those who, who have a meaningful connection with a person or entity in the country, and that is left sort of undefined uh, in this order, as far as I can tell. Um, and that, that must, if they have that meaningful uh, connection, they must be allowed in. Um, but two questions come to my mind, at least, on that point. One, where does that distinction even come from? It seems like, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but it seems like a matter of the judiciary sort of legislating from the bench themselves, as Republicans pretend to oppose um, this meaningful connection, uh, bona fide uh, connection. Where does that come from? Did they just invent that compromise themselves? So the court claims that it is basing this category off of the plaintiffs who brought these cases. The plaintiffs who sued in the Fourth and Ninth Circuits had these kind of meaningful connections for the most part. Uh, they had close family members who were trying to come to the U.S., mm -hmm. uh, or they were planning to come soon, or they had some kind of acceptance at an institution here. Uh, and so the court said, well, we're going to look at what these plaintiffs have uh, and say that that is the new category of people who must be exempted from the travel ban. But what the court doesn't explain is why it creates this new category right. basing the, the standards off of these plaintiffs. And it can't because there's no real legal reason for it. The court uses this very vague language about the balance of equities and the balance of harms, mm -hmm. uh, and it claims that it is weighing uh, both sides of the injunction to find an equitable balance. But it's not really doing that. What it's doing is finding a decision that will appease both sides, mm -hmm. a ruling that lets the president claim some kind of victory but ensures that the worst excesses of his travel ban will not be implemented at least straight away. And to so, sorry. Well, well no, to, to be clear, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad they have found some sort of a carve-out, some sort of a compromise, if, at least if they're not going to, uh, you know, uphold the, the injunction on these things altogether. But, but it is interesting that they sort of just invented this it it seems to me this this distinction and it's something that you know republicans say the courts should not do they should not be deciding uh these you know uh, you know how the statutes are carried out and and you know on what basis unless it's written into the rule of law and as far as i can tell that's not written here at all this idea of a meaningful connection with a person or entity and as you note in your coverage at slate mark um as as Clarence Thomas wrote in uh, in his uh, partial dissent here, along with Thomas and Alito, um, I'm sorry, along with Alito and Gorsuch, uh, that's likely going to lead to a whole bunch of new litigation on what that actually means. What what is a meaningful connection to a person or entity? 
Right. Uh, and so I think that what we, can, what we can speculate about is that the court wanted to push this case off for the summer in a way that wouldn't cause them too much trouble. The justices did not want to spend more time in Washington. They all have summer plans. They don't want to have to deal with this litigation at all. Uh, and so what this stopgap solution does is allow the ban to take effect for the most part, uh, but prevent these kinds of emergency motions from flooding up uh, the way that they were when the first ban was implemented. This is a sort of, I would say, O'Connor-esque baby-splitting solution. If Justice O'Connor uh, is paying attention to the court these days, I think she's going to be very happy with this solution because it's basically a, a, an amendment to, a, to an executive order, but it gets the job done and it lets the justices fly off to their vacations and cushy gigs for the summer months. In, the, in uh, their separate opinion, uh, Thomas and Alito and Gorsuch wrote that they would have allowed the ban to take effect in its entirety, uh, with uh, Thomas noting that, to his mind, the government has made a strong showing that it is likely to succeed on the merits, that is, uh, that the judgments below uh, will be reversed, he says. Well, given that the travel ban has pretty much been rejected on both constitutional and statutory grounds in pretty much every court where it has been challenged, Mark, uh, doesn't Thomas's suggestion there means that he believes uh, no matter what the lower courts have repeatedly said, a whole bunch of different ones, that he and his right wing stolen cabal on the Supreme Court plan to overrule the lower courts anyway here? Oh, yes. He, he all but states that he wants to uh, just overrule the lower courts as quickly as possible. Uh, and he goes even further. He's really playing a game here. He says that he reads the per curiam, the per curiam opinion uh, to uh, effectively concede that the decisions below were incorrect. Uh, I don't know where Thomas gets that from. I actually think that the per curiam opinion is pretty smart and, and crafty and canny about not showing its cards. But Thomas wants to affect the way that it's read. Thomas wants to influence the way that it is interpreted by the lower courts. And so he throws out this fresh meat for the lower court judges to grab onto, if they so choose, in order to say, yeah, you know, the court said this in a per curiam opinion, but if you read what Justice Thomas and his buddies said, they think the writing's really on the wall, and we're going to go with them uh, and read this order as narrowly as possible, because we're pretty sure that the travel ban is going to be upheld in its entirety one day soon. And, 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 yeah, he's just stating that without giving a reason for it, but it does suggest to me that he... Uh, actually, the three of them, I guess, Thomas Alito and, and Gorsuch, believe they can get essentially two more votes uh, this uh, this fall when when the case is finally heard, if it is heard. This was supposed to be for a 90 day halt uh, on on regular immigration from those six countries. I believe we're now beyond those 90 days. And 120-day halt on refugees will certainly be beyond 120 days, I guess, by the time they uh, reconvene this fall. So what will there be to actually hear by the time the, the, the court reconvenes on this matter, Mark? Right. So, in fact, the second order had a provision in it that stated if this is upheld and allowed to go into effect, then it will do so uh, within a few days. And so the order will now go into effect a little later this week. The 90-day time limit will run out uh, in late September. The 120-day 
time limit on, on the refugee freeze will run out uh, a little bit later in October, obviously. The court will hear this case right around the same time that that 120-day mm. clock has run down. Uh, and so you have to wonder, what will there be left for the justices to decide? If the 90-day thing has happened and the 120-day thing is about to finish happening, mm-hmm. then what are the live legal issues there? Uh, and I think, and many others agree, uh, that there won't be one, and that this entire thing at bottom is an attempt by the justices to ensure that when the merits hit them, when they actually have to render a decision on the merits of this issue, uh, they won't actually really have to anymore because there's no live issue, it's all moot, and they can just toss it out and pretend it never happened. Wow, an actual real live example of justice delayed, justice denied in this case, uh, for sure, it seems to me. Uh, there were a couple of other uh, decisions, announcements today at the uh, at the court, uh, Supreme Court, to hear a constitutional challenge to LGBTQ non-discrimination laws, as you describe it over at Slate.com. Mark Joseph Stern, so you send up a very, very red flag, a bright red flare on this one. Uh, and it ties together with another decision by the court today, I think, uh, which may be the only bit of good news from the court. Uh, but you write, uh, make no mistake on this uh, LGBTQ case. Monday's announcement means that non-discrimination laws across the country are in serious peril. After decades of progress, LGBTQ advocates may be on the verge of a constitutional catastrophe. Wow. Really? What's that case about, Mark? Really? I stand behind every word, even a few hours later. Uh, what's that case about? It's, it's probably familiar to most people at this mm-hmm. point. Uh, this is the case in which a same-sex couple walked into a cake shop and said, Hi, we'd like a wedding cake. And the cake shop's owner said, No, we don't serve same-sex couples here. Uh, the couple sued because Colorado prohibits uh, sexual orientation discrimination uh, in public accommodations. Of course, the couple won because they had been uh, discriminated against. Uh, but the cake shop turned around and appealed the decision, saying that it had a free speech and free exercise right under the First Amendment of the Constitution to refuse to serve same-sex couples uh, and actually any other groups of people uh, who violated their religious beliefs. The court has now taken this case, which I interpret to mean there are at least four votes to side with the cake shop and hold that states may not lawfully bar businesses from discriminating against LGBTQ customers. And that is uh, disturbing because, yeah, all they would then need is one more vote. And by your math that you have uh, taken out from the other uh, uh, ruling today, which should otherwise be good news, Uh, This does not bode well. So let's jump to this other case and then we can tie them together here. The Supreme Court orders states to list same-sex parents on birth certificates. That seems like a good thing. You write on Monday the Supreme Court ruled that the Constitution requires states to list married same-sex couples on their children's birth certificate. The decision marks a landmark victory for gay rights, confirming that the court's decision in Obergefell versus Hodges, that was the same-sex marriage case, um, protects all rights relating to marriage, not simply the recognition of marriage itself. That, in and of itself, should be a good thing, uh, but you notice one aspect of this uh, decision that uh, bodes, well, bodes poorly, I guess, for that other case, the, 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 baking, uh, the cake baking case. 
Yes, that's right. And that is, of course, that Justice Neil Gorsuch, he of the stolen seats, uh, dissented from the court's decision, um, seemed to believe that Arkansas had uh, a serious reason to keep same-sex couples off their children's birth certificate, uh, which was biology to his mind. Uh, he said Arkansas is merely trying to recognize uh, the parents' biological reality, uh, despite the fact that in Arkansas, adoptive parents can have their adopted child's original birth certificate torn up and replaced with a new one that includes the adoptive parents' names, so long as they're not gay. If they are gay, then they're not allowed to be listed. That doesn't set off any red flags for Gorsuch. Neither does the fact that in Arkansas, if a woman is artificially inseminated with a third-party sperm, uh, her lawful husband will still be listed as the father of their child on the birth certificate, even though he is known not to be the biological father. Uh, that didn't set off any alarm bells for Gorsuch mm. either. Uh, and in fact, Justices Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito joined his dissent. Uh, there was some speculation when Gorsuch was nominated that because he was young and from Colorado, LGBT rights might be the one area in which he's somewhat progressive. That is now clearly dead wrong. He is a surefire vote against LGBTQ rights, uh, and I am terrified that he is just as bad, if not worse, than Scalia yep. and could lead us to some very dark places, including the eventual reversal of Obergefell itself. Really? The reversal of Obergefell? Well, uh, it's impossible for me to draw any other conclusion given the fact that Obergefell stated in the decision in Obergefell, the court said all same-sex couples must be treated equally with regard to yada, 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 a long list, and then death certificates and birth certificates. Obergefell resolved this question. And for Gorsuch to dissent from the pure application of Obergefell suggests to me that he doesn't think it's good law, he doesn't want to apply it, and when he can get his hands on it, he wants to overturn it. Wow, that's disturbing. Uh, but of course, that's not the only disturbing uh, stuff uh, this week and last in the U.S. Supreme Court announced at the end of their session. Last week, they announced a stay in a long-running case having to do with elections, with plans to hear that case as well in full next session. Uh, that particular case related to Wisconsin, but it's likely to have a huge effect on elections across the entire country and frankly could help determine if Democrats may ever have a shot at regaining the majority in the U.S. House of Representatives, uh, not to mention state houses around the country. We will talk about that story next with Mark Jer Joseph Stern of Slate.com. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. Don't go away. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the broadcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate today 
to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com donate, and thanks. A lot of red rain pouring down from the U.S. Supreme Court and across the country uh, at the end of the U.S. Supreme Court's session uh, with a bunch of decisions coming out uh, last week and this. uh, The 2016 presidential contest, as AP notes today, was awash with charges that the fix was in in 2016. Republican Donald Trump repeatedly claimed that the election was rigged against him. Democrats have accused the Russians of stacking the odds in Trump's favor. But less attention has been paid to manipulation that occurred not during the presidential race, but before it in the drawing of lines for hundreds of U.S. and state legislative seats. The results, according to an Associated Press analysis today, finds that Republicans had a very real advantage in November of 2016. The AP scrutinized the outcomes of all 435 U.S. House races and about 4,700 state House and Assembly seats that were up for election last year using a new statistical method of calculating partisan advantage. It was designed to detect cases in which one party may have won, widened, or retained its grip on power through partisan political gerrymandering. The analysis found four times as many states with Republican-skewed state House or Assembly districts than Democratic ones. Four times as many. Among the two dozen most populated states that determine the vast majority of Congress, there were nearly three times as many with Republican-tilted U.S. House districts. That does include uh, traditional battleground states like Michigan, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Florida, and Virginia. They were among the states with significant Republican advantages baked into the cake, so to speak, in their U.S. or state house races. All had districts that were drawn by Republicans after the last census in 2010. The AP analysis also found that Republicans ended up winning as many as 22 additional U.S. House seats over what would have been expected based on average vote share in congressional districts across the country. So using their statistical method, they found that essentially Republicans uh, gained 22 seats that they didn't deserve just because of the way the Republicans drew the line in these uh, states all across the country. Of course, most of that partisan redistricting is likely to be in play once again in the 2018 elections where Democrats would need to take away some 24 seats from Republicans to regain the majority. 24 seats. Now, remember, the Republicans got 22 seats just based on the way they drew the lines. But the AP finds essentially that the fix is in when it comes to partisan gerrymandering of these states, mostly drawn by Republicans after the 2010 census. And while gerrymandering for racial purposes has been largely found to be unconstitutional, 
uh, the schemes that uh, are carried out by, frankly, both Republicans and Democrats when they're in control, though the GOP is much better at it. Uh, the, the schemes that draw these congressional and state house district maps based on partisan lines haven't really been decided one way or another by the U.S. Supreme Court. Recently, an appeals court in, in Wisconsin found that uh, found that that state's congressional districts were unlawfully drawn along partisan lines, and that was a first-time-ever finding. The courts ordered new maps to be drawn in the Badger State, but the state appealed, and last week the U.S. Supreme Court agreed to hear the case and stayed the appeals court ruling until the case is heard next year. That makes it more likely now that the same partisan redistricted uh, maps will be used in Wisconsin they will stay in play, most likely during the next year's uh, 2018 midterm elections. So what does that mean for Wisconsin and the rest of the country? Well, we are speaking with uh, Slate's Supreme Court and legal expert Mark Joseph Stern about that and much more. Uh, Mark, this decision uh, concerning the Wisconsin case, as far as I can tell, this case may be as big as Citizens United when it comes to the way that elections are carried out in the U.S., uh, and, and not in a good way. Am I overstating it in, in looking at it in that sense first? Well, I mean, I think the comparison to Citizens United makes sense in terms of impact. Uh, the, if this case comes out uh, a certain way, what I consider to be the correct way, mm -hmm. uh, then everything will change about the way that we conduct elections and think about elections uh, in, in a lot of parts of the United States. Uh, because suddenly, very quickly, depending on how the court rules exactly, but presumably within a few years, we will be living in districts that actually allow free, fair elections that are competitive between both candidates. Now, that's if the case comes out the right way. If it comes out the wrong way, not only will none of that happen, but it actually could get worse. The gerrymandering could become even more uh, just terrible uh, because Republicans uh, and Democrats in a few Democrat-controlled states feel there are no constitutional boundaries. They get to do whatever they want, and they can draw the maps however they wish and rig the elections anytime they choose. So this could be, if it's found, if the court up, uh, upholds what the appellate court found concerning Wisconsin and that they had used unlawful partisan gerrymandering to draw their districts. If the if the U.S. Supreme Court upholds that, this could be wildly good news because it would force all of the states, really, uh, so many of them in any event, who have been found to have used uh, partisan reasons. I mean, basically what they say is, uh, well, we, we, we can't uh, use racial means to gerrymander, but we weren't doing that. We were using partisan means. It's okay as long as we try to get an advantage for Republicans. Uh, as opposed to, you know, for white people. Um, but if the court comes out right, uh, they, they could well say, no, you can't do that. You have to draw these lines fairly. But isn't the fact that the court agreed to hear this case at all and put a stay on the ruling, they also didn't have to put a stay on the ruling out of the Wisconsin uh, court, isn't that, uh, doesn't that suggest bad news here, Mark? So I've got good news and bad news. I'll the take good, the good news, news is that due to a, a 
quirk in the law that I won't fully explain because it's boring. The court basically had to take this case. It, it actually has what's called mandatory jurisdiction over this case. Mm. Uh, it really didn't have a choice. It could have tried to duck from it, but it had to address it in some way, shape, or form. Uh, and because of the type of lawsuit that it is, because of the subject matter, it's just one of these narrow kinds of cases where the court has to take it. Uh, that's the good news. We can't read anything into the court's decision uh, to hear it. The bad news is that, of course, by a five to four vote, uh, conservatives versus liberals, uh, the court did put the lower court's decision on hold, put it on ice uh, until the Supreme Court hears this case and, and renders a decision. Uh, and so unfortunately, um, Wisconsin will not be seeing new congressional maps this year, as we had hoped. Uh, and we may read some tea leaves into the five conservatives' decision to put that lower court ruling on ice rather than allowing it to take effect. Another place where that stolen Supreme Court majority uh, is now finally paying off uh, for the Republicans here, as far as I can tell. Now, you wrote about... uh about this case uh, last week, and along with it, you tied together two other opinions that were issued at the same time last Monday, both related to First Amendment speech cases, in which you, Mark Joseph Stern, uh, joined the court in defending both hate speech and pedophiles. So please, sir, explain your defense for hate speech and pedophiles, uh, and then we could talk about how those cases tie into this partisan gerrymandering case out of Wisconsin. Uh, well, that's easy. I'll, I'll do that any day of the week. Uh, the, the hate speech case was actually a trademark case. Uh, it involved a band called The Slants, which is an Asian-American rock band mm-hmm. that wanted to register their name as a federal trademark. Uh, the government refused to register the name The Slants uh, because there is a law prohibiting the registration of disparaging trademarks. Uh, Any trademark that disparages a certain group or person uh, cannot be registered. Um, The Supreme Court, by a unanimous vote, I should add, uh, Mm -hmm. struck down that law. Uh, The decision was split. Uh, Some of the justices said that the law was simply too broad. Others said that the law uh, discriminated on the basis of viewpoint. Mm -hmm. Um, And the court has said many, many times that any time the government restricts speech or expression or political association on the basis of viewpoint, uh, it's basically broken the law. It's violated the First Amendment. Uh, Either way, no matter how you shake it, it was a great victory for the freedom of speech. Uh, I certainly don't trust the government to decide what words or ideas are derogatory, uh, and neither should anybody else. Uh, and I think so. This was a terrific decision. Uh, the other one. And, uh, hang involving- on, Mark, Mark. Before you get to the uh, to the pedophiles, the, uh, yeah. <laughs> the, the how does that case? This is the one that a lot of people may be familiar, may remember. The the Washington Redskins had uh, had their trademark patent uh, uh, rejected, essentially by the or, or reversed by the trademark office. Uh, and so this seemingly would now allow them allow the Redskins to once again. Uh, get a trademark or patent for, uh, I guess, a trademark for uh, for Washington Redskins. So does this impact Native Americans and their fight, as far as you can tell, to remove uh, racist sports mascots like the uh, like the Redskins? Yes, uh, it will almost certainly uh, affect the Redskins litigation and will ensure that the Redskins 
will be able to keep the trademark on their name. Uh, I obviously hate that name, and I'm very much opposed to it. I think it's disgusting, um, but I still just don't think that it's the government's job to decide which trademarks are offensive and which ones aren't. Uh, and by way of example, uh, for many years, the government has refused to grant a trademark to Dykes on Bikes, a lesbian <laughs> pride group, uh, on the grounds that its name, which is supposed to be reclaiming the word Dykes, uh, is somehow offensive or disparaging. Um, I think that if we want true free speech in this country, we have to let the Redskins have their trademark, and we have to let the Dykes on Bikes have their trademark, too. And apparently we have to let pedophiles uh, participate in online forums, which uh, they had been barred from doing, but that, uh, that, too, was overturned by the U.S. Supreme Court last week. Yeah, this was a crazy North Carolina law. File this under our ongoing discussion about the breakdown of democracy in North Carolina. Uh, The Republicans in that state passed one of the wildest censorship laws we've seen in modern times, uh, basically barring uh, registered sex offenders from using a computer to access any website where they might interact with a minor. Uh, This in this swept in all registered sex offenders, not just pedophiles, people who had committed relatively minor crimes, even people who were in consensual relationships but convicted of statutory rape. Uh, They are barred under the law from using not just Facebook or Twitter, uh, but also websites like Amazon.com, the Washington Post.com, and others. And the court unanimously held once again, this law is way too broad. Mm -hmm. It censors far too much lawful speech, uh, and it just cannot pass constitutional muster. And just so that I don't leave you completely under the bus there, Mark Joseph Stern, I agree with you that the uh, court decided both of those cases uh, concerning uh, hate speech and pedophiles. I'm with you there uh, in, in both of those cases, frankly. So how does how do those two uh, decisions in the last uh, minute or two we have left here, how do both of those decisions tie into the Wisconsin partisan gerrymandering case. So put simply, you know, we talked about this idea of viewpoint discrimination. The government doesn't get to punish you based on uh, your expression of your viewpoint, your political views, your political affiliation. Uh, And yet that is exactly what partisan gerrymandering is. When a state draws district lines in a way that's designed to dilute your vote because you affiliate with the Democratic Party and express your support for the Democratic Party, it is punishing you. The state is punishing Mm. you on the basis of your viewpoint. That is precisely what the First Amendment disallows. That is exactly what the court uh, confirmed the government cannot do, and in both of these cases, really, but specifically the uh, hate speech case, the government doesn't get to burden you because of your viewpoint. When the government dilutes the power of your vote because of your viewpoint, it violates free expression and freedom of association. Uh, Justice Kennedy expressed those views loudly and clearly in both of the cases we just discussed. So here's hoping that he keeps his head on his shoulders and his butt on the bench, yeah. uh, and he remembers these principles when he has to decide the partisan gerrymandering case next term. Well, well said, because I was wondering, was uh, A, uh, have the, uh, the, the folks arguing in favor, or I'm sorry, against this partisan gerrymandering, have they brought up this First Amendment issue, uh, First Amendment issue and how 
uh, what can we foretell about this case for next session? It sounds like it all comes down to Anthony Kennedy, and we are once again on uh, retirement watch here. Uh, any indication that he is, in fact, going to retire before next session? No, I don't think it will happen. I mean, it certainly could. It could happen 10 minutes after we end this discussion. Yes. Uh, but my money is on him staying for at least another term, and I'll revisit that timeline this time next year. <laughs> yes, very good. I'll, you know what? Let's just stick with that encouraging news for the moment since everything else was so dark. Mark Joseph Stern, find his work uh, always clear and always smart over at Slate.com. You can follow him on the Twitters at MJS underscore DC. Uh, he covers, of course, law, the Supreme Court, the court system, and LGBTQ issues at Slate.com. Mark, really appreciate talking to you, my friend. Uh, get some rest after this session. We are going to be calling you again soon anyway. Okay. <laughs> Sounds good. I look forward to it, and I hope to have better news to report at that point. Yes, please. Thank you. So much information uh, always from Mark Joseph Stern. Oh, and done in the most entertaining way possible, I think. And it reminds me, uh, do I have the time for this? Yeah, let me do this. Very, very quick email from uh, Rico in Pittsburgh to bradcast at bradblog.com. Uh, he writes, Hi, Brad. I'm thrilled to be a continuing supporter of your swell and necessary endeavor. Oh, and thank you. And you best believe I do everything in my power to spread the word at how informative and entertaining your show is. Seriously, you and Desi purvey so much useful material that your daily offerings... Uh, you make my head hurt. Oh. <laughs> I think that's a compliment. I, I hope think so. <laughs> makes my head hurt too, uh, Rico. Uh, he says, though, that could also be a byproduct of all the truly dreadful subjects you are forced to cover. That's true as well. Yeah. He adds, having said that, there will surely come a time many years from now when you shuffle off this mortal coil. And when that time comes, I would like to propose this epitaph. Now, this comes in context of uh, my constant yelling and screaming at people about the use of 100% unverifiable touchscreen voting systems. Okay. As we saw last week at once again in Georgia and the insanity of that. Uh, so here's his uh, epitaph suggestion for me. Brad Friedman, 1967 assumed. He puts in, he doesn't know how old I am, but uh, we'll go with that. 1967-2068. Oh, I like that part of it. That's a uh, he adds, gone to heaven, 100% unverifiable. Ah. <laughs> that's good. I think that's about right. He adds, I think it's perfect, but hey, brother, it's your funeral, so you decide. Perfect indeed. Peace eternal and love as always from Rico in Deberg. Thanks, Rico. Thanks, I appreciate Rico that. For the laugh. And thanks to you, Desi Doyen, our producer today, and my guest, Mark Joseph Stern of Slate.com, and to you for spending a portion of your time. With us. If you missed any portion of today's broadcast, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. While you're there, your support is appreciated at bradblog.com slash donate. Find me, follow me, and share me worldwide, just as Rico does, on the Facebooks and the Twitters at the Bradblog or drop me email. I'm Bradcast at Bradblog.com. That is it, peoples. Hang in there until we meet again. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.